OMG. Tonight, something is happening. Tonight, we start the Fall Collective. It is starting tonight with Class 1 of How the F Do I Start Even Studying? Oh my gosh. So, there is still time to sign up. If you are on the fence, if you have been wondering what this collective is all about that these bitches talk about, it is happening tonight. It is literally us covering every item of the task list, going through Cooper with you, ethics with you, letting you know when to read, what to read. You show up, we teach you, we take notes with you. It is literally a blast and it is not boring. We will make you laugh so much. Trust me, I still crack up. And anyways, head over to studynotesaba.com. Sign up for the Fall Collective. There are three different packages. So pick your choice and see us tonight at 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. We cannot wait. And if the Fall Collective isn't working for you right now and you want to see what we're all about, we have drop-ins. So do a single drop-in tonight. Come say hi and see what the collective's all about. All right? Love you. Mean it. Study notes, Behavior bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we are here with episode 120. Casey, do we even have a rhyme anymore? I mean, I just made it up right now, but it's probably one we've done before. Like Rihanna's brand of makeup is Fenty? Was that it? No, but I like that. I was going to say 120. Could today's guest be our hero? I think we've used hero for every episode that ends I know, in a zero. That's why I said that. so, amazing. <laughs> All right. So today, before we get started with anything, I think we got to we haven't podcasted in a while, actually. We had a lot in the bank. So we kind of have to get back into our podcasting flow. Not to mention, we're not used to sitting next to each other. We are sitting V close right now. Why are we sitting V close? Because Casey's in Dallas and we got an office for study notes which we are trying to set up, which is giving me a minor anxiety attack, just overwhelming of merch. So it's so funny. I have, we've both been doing this in our home. I mean, I have an office recently at my house, but we've both been working out of our house for what, almost four years? Yeah. And I've been so envious when I see other companies setting up these wicked cute offices and coming together every day to work. And I'm like, so lonely and being here and having actual Snava headquarters now and a team, it's actually giving She's me a lot move of life. Here. It's a lot. It's giving me a lot of life because um, loneliness is a real thing. Let me tell you. So I think we need some reinforcement. I agree. Get us some reinforcement. Tell 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 me that they like us, and we'll keep going. Okay. I also want to say I'm not going to read it right now, but I will save it. We had someone send us an Instagram message about our last review saying, don't ever stop being you. You're saving, like changing lives and we love you. And I just said, I'm like, can you please leave that on Apple? <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> Anyways, um, let's come in from don't be a B, except a behavior B. Um, amazing. Five stars had to provide some positive reinforcement for Liat and Casey. I'm a few weeks out from testing and love listening to your podcast to and from work each day. Just completed your 30 day cram and will be relying on the podcast for my daily dose of Liat and Casey. You girls are the best. Thank you. Don't be a bee. 
It means the world to us. Thank you. Thank and you. And please you. go and leave a review. It takes five seconds. Literally and it five really does seconds. Mean the world and it keeps us. us going. Okay. Let me tell you something. You think, oh, it gets easy just to go sit on the air and do a podcast. I mean, it is easy with Alan. Shout out to Alan. However, to get yourself into doing anything this consistent and all the prep that goes before a show is a lot. So if you want us to keep going, I'm just saying go leave us a five-star review or none at all. Thank you. want to also take a minute that when you guys are listening, you're probably driving to work on a Monday morning, mm-hmm. right? It drops at usually 7 a.m. So if we are the first people you're listening to on your way to work on a Monday morning, you've got this shit. You've got this shit. It's Monday and it's almost Friday. No, I'm kidding. That's very optimistic. I'm, I like that about you. It is. Like you're so close. Think of it though. Change like I have to go to work to I get to go to work. I agree. Totally. All right, guys. It's time for the behavior principles we're going to cover today. The behavior principles are assessment, the applied dimension of ABA, skill versus performance deficit, repertoire, treatment barriers, database decisions, selectionism, effective pairing, and assessment. We will be covering a lot more, but that is all I have for you right now. Hey, everyone. Guess what? Casey's getting older. In fact, Casey is turning 35 today. Well, anyways, the day the podcast drops, June 27th. And because of this, Casey loves a good mock exam. So we decided to do 35% off all mock exams on the website. If you head over to studynotesaba.com, type in coupon code Casey and get 35% off all mock exams. Love ya. Mean it. We got you. We love you. And let's talk about our amazing guest today. So, Liat, you know, goes down these Insta or LinkedIn holes where she finds these big people. And I'm like, they're never going to come on the show ever, Liat. Like, who do you think you are? Well, she reaches out. Sometimes it's a flop and they don't respond or we're not their cup of tea. Sometimes we get lucky, like we did today, and they respond back to us and say, I would love to come on. So I'm going to give a little bit of an intro. Please do. Okay. So today's guest, his name is Gil Winch. He is a PhD. He has served as a personal consultant to CEOs and leaders, such as the Israeli National Chief of Police. He has degrees in special education and psychology, a master's degree in clinical psychology, and a doctorate in psychology. He also has advanced training in treating PTSD. So let's just talk a little bit about him. So after learning about the extreme worldwide unemployment of people with disabilities, he began researching and developing a very unique managerial model that enables people with disabilities to achieve regular productivity in free market businesses for regular market wages. Say what? So he wanted to build a ground, for, a proving ground for the model. He founded CY, which I'll let him talk about in Liat because I can't really pronounce it. Kol Yachol. Kol Yachol. 
She can't say that. <laughs> and he founded this in 2008, an outsourcing services call center in for-profit social business staffed and managed by disabled people as well as non-disabled individuals from other marginalized populations. He's also, I think we're going to talk about a book that he's recently written called Winning with Underdogs. He also does a lot about helping people be their best in interviews, which is really, really cool. And I want him to talk all about that. So, Gil, and just to add, sorry, one thing. Okay, he's done what all of us want to do. He is on a TED Talk. Oh, yes, that's and my it's dream. an amazing TED Talk. Oh, and then also, there's a YouTube. Yeah, sorry, you know, just because we're like bitches, we like to go off. He also has like an identical twin brother. I'm talking like identical. Yes, that Guy actually, Winch. Guy Winch. Also doing badass things. And when we reached out to Gil, he's like, are you sure you didn't want my brother? Which I assume maybe was like a, that's what happened with dating when he was younger or something. So he assumed that was it. And we were like, no, we want you. So here we are. Welcome, Gil. Hello. That was quite the intro. Thank you very much. It, it's good you mentioned my twin because so many people get mixed up. He's also a psychologist. He's much more well-known than I am. He's got books that are translated to 30 or 40 languages. He's got maybe 40 million views on his three TED Talks. Um, and he's called Guy Winch, and G. Winch and G. Winch is confusing. And just about two or three weeks ago, this like four-page internet um, thing came out about him, which is amazing. They got all the information about him. Starts off with a picture of me, though. And um, so this happens a lot because they just came up on a picture looks like him. It's, it was happens to be me. I'm not even sure, always sure, by the way. But So Who's if you, you come across it, it's not, it's, it's not me. But uh, the reason I ask is he lives in the States, in America. So uh, so often, often there's confusion. Oh, wow. Where does he live here? He lives in New York. Um, he has been for the past maybe close to 30 years already. Wow, wow, wow. Maybe even more, yeah. Um, Wait, and you get confused even looking at a picture? Well, I'm I'm used to looking at him. I'm, I, I don't spend that much time in front of a mirror. I'm used to looking at him. So when I see both of us together, it's not a view I'm used to. Everybody else but the two of us is used to seeing us together. We're not. We're used to seeing us one at a time. And so there are lots of pictures I can look at. I'm not really sure. My, my daughters and my wife, but I'm not really sure sometimes who is... Um, who is whom? Wow. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you do? I finished, I finished, uh, I, I wanted to go to university and broaden my horizons. And when I looked at what's uh, up there to be studied, psychology and um, archaeology, basically, were, were the only two things I thought I could actually study and enjoy because the rest was, was I didn't think I'd enjoy. But I didn't really know much about psychology, and I, I started out with psychology and special education. Um, I did a master's in clinical psychology, but that was a huge mistake um, insofar as I have zero patience to hear people complain all day. It's just not something I would want to do as a living. Um, I just went into clinical psychology because it was interesting. But after a year of, of, of therapy... Um, and I always say, with the encouragement of my patients, <laughs> I decided that maybe I should um, look for a different, a different uh, side of psychology which would more benefit my personality, which is an ADD basic personality. 
lacking the patience to hear people complain all day. So I became oh a God, consultant and then I get to tell people what to do. And that's so much more up my alley. Amazing. So I, I started out, I started out as, a, as a consultant and I, I spent um, maybe 15 years building a, a consulting firm. And because I'm from Israel and, uh, and army service is part of what people are mandatory to do here, um, later on in my army service, I, I decided to use the psychology and do undergo uh, more in- intensive training for uh, PTSD. Very army-related training, though. Now get into the passion, see why and what led you to that. And s- talk about what that means, see why. Because I'm saying see why, I don't know how to say it. See why is short for kol yechol, which in Hebrew means able to do anything. But for people who are not who don't speak Hebrew, Arabic, or Afrikaans, the ch can be, or yeah, that's, yeah, like me. the ch can so be a bit, yeah, a bit, um, a bit phlegmy right there. So um, <laughs> I just and use yes, CY when I'm abroad. It makes life ever so much more simple for people. Um, the idea of that started 40 years ago. I was looking for something um, social I could uh, get into. And a friend of mine told me about uh, the plight and uh, chronic unemployment of people worldwide, unemployment of people with severe disabilities. And it sounded, it sounded reasonable when he told me about it, but when I went home, I thought, wait a minute, it just doesn't make sense. Because if you think about it, what are all, I mean, worldwide, basically disabled people are out of a job, maybe 60, 70% of them, but when it comes to severely disabled people, people in a wheelchair, legally blind people, 100% emotionally disabled people, 90% are out of a job. But when I thought about it, it just makes no sense. Why are people in a wheelchair out of a job? I mean, what do they do at home all day? They do screens and phones. Well, what do most mm-hmm. people do at the job all day? Screens and phones. So why are people in a wheelchair out of a job? I, I found out quickly that 80% of the people who are legally blind in the world have sight left, and they can function on a computer with software. Why are they out of a job, 90% of them? of the severely disabled are people with emotional disabilities, but most of them are compliant with their medication. You wouldn't necessarily know you're speaking to someone with an emotional disability. Why are they out of a job? When you look to see who the severely disabled are comprised of, the fact that they're all out of a job makes no sense. And all of a sudden, it hit me that apparently it can't seem to have to do anything with their disabilities. But if it's not their disabilities that are keeping them out of a job, because since the Industrial Revolution, right, we're not doing the, the fields and the plowing and the people can work in front of screens and computers. So there's no good reason disability-wise that they're out of a job. And I thought if it's not their disabilities, maybe it's something I can find out what it is and maybe fix it, I thought. And if I could fix it, even a bit, the amount of suffering it would alleviate would be amazing. It would be like, because there, there are about a billion people with disabilities. I would say probably about 300, 400 million people with severe disabilities. So if I can help some of that, a percentage of that, of those people find a job, that would be like amazing. So that, that's what I started out with. So you saw this need and you had a background in special education and psychology. How did you get started? This is a major, major, major problem and something that I can only imagine, especially back then, 
you had to create a lot of infrastructure? Well, first of all, I didn't I didn't start with doing. I started with trying to figure out what the real reasons people with disabilities worldwide are out of a job. What are the reasons? Because I'll tell you what, basically all the countries in the world, um, how their train of thought goes with this. They say, all right, so if there's this severely disabled person who's out of a job, maybe they're missing like an accommodation or like a ramp or software. So we'll provide that, governments say. And if after we provided that or it's not needed, they are still out of a job, then maybe they lack opportunity. So we'll provide opportunity in various ways. But if people who are severely disabled don't lack an accommodation because they have it or don't need it, and they've had opportunities which didn't work, then apparently they lack ability. Next. So that's the basic train of thought that governments operate with. They try to take away the need for physical uh, uh, accommodations, um, and uh, they try to provide opportunities. But once those aren't enough, then apparently lack of ability and they move on. And I started interviewing people with severe disabilities, um, and I interviewed a lot, about 100. Nowadays, it's about up to about 15,000. So I think wow. our data is robust. And I, after the first 100, even before, I was creating like a map of all the reasons I heard or I inferred that the real reasons people are out of a job, and it had nothing to do with what I said before. There were three chunks of reasons that everybody was talking about, or I understood that they were there, that those were the real reasons people with disabilities were out of a job. And I thought once I figured that those are the reasons, that they're all solvable. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what they are in a sec, but Solvable, I mean, I, I, I thought that I could put together an operating model that would cater to all of them. I'd be able to nullify them and then afford people with severe disabilities a chance to enter the workplace for regular wages and attain regular productivity if everything went according to plan, so I thought. And then I started, that took me about a year. It took me about four years to put together a model because I wasn't doing this full time. I was, I was, I was working and I was living sort of thing. But it took me four years to put together a model which I thought would cater to all the things I, I heard, all the problems, the three major problems I heard about, which I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in a sec. And only after I had that and I looked for a customer for a whole year and I couldn't find one, um, that I decided I'll, I'll, I have to do this, I'll have to do this by myself. But but that wasn't the original plan. The original plan was to put together a model and convince someone to prove it works. Like because within a, within their workplace, you mean they'd prove it within? Yeah, because their I company? thought that I thought I have to prove not only that it works, but I have to prove that people are happy and are reaching regular productivity. Now, if I just opened um, a factory, people would say, "Yeah, but what's your benchmark? How do you know that what they're doing here is is the same as anybody else?" So I decided to open a call center or to do it with a call center because everything is measured in call centers and there'll always be other teams of regular able-bodied people doing the same work and we could always have a real apples-to-apples comparison and I could prove that my team, I hoped, has attained regular productivity. 
So I decided to open a call center and I wanted to do it. It's, it's, it's expensive to build a call center. I wanted to do it inside a company, but nobody actually wanted anything to do with it. <laughs> so Air my wife and I decided we have to do it by ourselves. So for anyone listening right now that might be studying, there are a few principles that I want to point out that Gil just talked about. He talked about meaningful happiness outcomes and jobs. And in our field for applied behavior analysis, um, we talk about this as the applied dimension of applied behavior analysis, right? It's in the first word of our science. Applied is that we want our clients to engage in socially significant, right? What's important to them is not important to everyone else. So it needs to be individualized and it needs to be socially significant for them. Which also, I also like yeah. one thing he added there. He had said that, you know, how uh, Gil had said, how is he going to check these benchmarks to see if, you know, it's not just like, oh, this is a charity project. Or We're going like to have subjective measurements. You need objective measurements. Right. And like, how are we going to have these individuals with, you know, um, disabilities working to have regular productivity, right? I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, what kind of jobs can we give these individuals? Like ableist. Can we, can we, um, you know, have them shred papers? Can we have them alphabetize, you know, these these files or whatever it is? And the idea, which I think is like so amazing what you do, Gil, because, you know, especially having a brother um, who is 26 of working age, to see that you were able to, you know, work with, these individuals to give the same work and getting real tasks that need to be done mm -hmm. by, let's say, typically developing, which I don't know what typical is anymore, <laughs> but um, typically developing individuals can do is really amazing. And one last thing I want to point out, if anyone, one of our students is listening and you're studying and we talk about, um, and I think you're going to get more into it with your interviewing, but about when, when you interviewing and you're looking at individuals and the same when you're working with uh, clients in a clinic, you want to see what is a skill deficit versus a performance deficit. So um, is there, is, is there someone lacking the skill? Like, okay, they, they, they literally can't walk. That's why they're not able to, you know, push, be a nanny and push a stroller around, right? Or is it a performance deficit? Like you have either, there's some like modification needed or it's, they just can't get up because there's not a ramp, but they're in a wheelchair and they could do every other thing like everyone so I, else. I so really give you, yeah. I, I want to give you an example of just, just with the same venue we're talking about. Were, we were interviewing, and I need to get back and tell you the, the, the three real reasons they're out of a job, but we were interviewing this woman for a position that needed some assertiveness. And she was very timid. She'd never worked before. She was a mom. Uh, she'd never worked before. And, and, in all the role-playing um, exercises, she just couldn't, just couldn't, you know, be assertive. And 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 the interviewer thought that she she won't be able to make it if she can't bring it even, you know, in the interview room within a game. And we she asked for a break, and 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 this lady stepped out, and there was, she got a call from her daughter, and she's standing in the cafeteria. And she has apparently a 12-year-old daughter. And this lady is screaming at her 12-year-old daughter. No, I don't allow you to do this. No, you will do this and this and this. No, you can't. She was being as assertive as you would ever need with her daughter. So you she said, do that. Do that in the office. Into the office. But that's exactly 
the, the so, such an important point you made between do they have it in them or can they, are they just having a problem in bringing it to bear at the moment? Which we, we call generalizing. We're like, okay, if you could do this in one setting, can you generalize it to other settings? Can you do it to other behaviors? You know, if you're able to, you know, so for, to my is. mind, you obviously can. You probably might need training, help, you know, uh, 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 um, being cheered on or something. But if you can do it here, then you have that skill set. Then you just need to learn how to, how to do it elsewhere. And that, that's a very, very important distinction to my mind. Love it. Should I say briefly what the three reasons, real reasons, yes, people must. with you disability? Because I, I, I'm sure people listening... I mean, if anybody wanted to like hazard a guess, so hazard your guess now because I'm going to ruin it in a second. But people usually don't come up with the real reasons, and I'll tell you the real reasons. I'll, I'll do it briefly, but the first reason is attendance issues. Now, lots of single parents also have attendance issues, but they're all the same attendance issues with single parents, right? Kids are sick or uh, home from school, and I, I have problems there. But with people with disabilities, they each have their own individual attendance problems. I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, in Rochester, New York, it rains over 160 days a year. And people with walkers can't make it in the rain. There's, they can't hold an umbrella over the walker. They're usually frail and they go slow. So by the time they get in, even if it's a 10-meter gap, they'll get drenched. So they don't turn up to work when it's raining. 160 days not turning up to work in Rochester, New York. I mean, that's going to... Lots of the people with PTSD that we were discussing before, um, uh, and we have a large group of women who who have severe PTSD, they really, really don't like it when it starts getting dark. Some of them live an hour and a half or two commute away from the call center. So to get in in the morning and get back in the evening, in the summertime or in the wintertime, that's a huge change of hours. They turn up at 10 in the winter. They leave at 2. Someone doing dialysis has to go to hospital three times a week. They're not always the same days. So people with uh, uh, disabilities often have attendance issues, but they're very uh, uh, different for each one. And either they turn up and they don't talk about it, and then they can't maintain or they do talk about it, and then the employee hears that they're going to be turning up two days a week and says, well, don't bother. It sort of ends there. Attendance issues is problem number one. Problem number two is poverty and pensions. And I'll explain. Poverty is people who are really, really, really poor. They have life problems that most of us don't know enough about. I mean, it's very, very difficult to start a new job if you've never worked before, especially if all your bandwidth is taken up with what am I feeding my kid when I get home? We have no money and I have no food, right? Um, if if you have in a, a, a need of a root canal and you're in pain and you don't have enough, enough money for a dentist and you're starting a new job, it's going to be very difficult for you. Poor people have so many things draining their bandwidth that when they try to get back into the workplace, even if you know they could be disabled or anybody, but if they try to get back into the workplace, they face an awful lot of problems that for you, you we never face those kinds of problems. But people who get a pension are in like a real paradox, a catch-22 thing. Because in order to get a disability pension, 
you have to convince yourself first of all and then the rest of the world what that you have no ability now it doesn't matter if you're for instance wheelchair bound but you have to convince various doctors social workers people and yourself because otherwise you'll never be convincing that you cannot work you don't have the ability to study to have responsibility to take action you don't have that and you have to convince people otherwise you won't get the minimum money you need just to f- somehow survive it's as if each month of a pension is a month of intense training of how to never work because when you do get a job offer all of a sudden within one hour you need to change your identity from someone who has no ability whatsoever to the exact opposite it can happen it just doesn't take an hour it doesn't even take a week so they need those pensions to live but they're changing their identity and making it so much more difficult for them to get back into the work market because of the change in the identity self identity where we we by the way uh, yeah. we're, we're waiting to respond to all these once you get through three we got lots of stuff to say we're taking notes as we go i have goosebumps i'm like oh my god she goodness. actually does i always thought she lied on the podcast i know but i'm in person i have goosebumps but I, she I really does and we are sharing one pen by the way <laughs> so each of us like because this office is not set up yet so cut with, into the pen supply budget. chain issues it is yep oh no we <laughs> are a pen company trust me we have millions <laughs> <laughs> all right what's number three gal Okay, reason number three is something I call PTSR, but nobody else does because there's no such thing. It's post-traumatic social rejection. And I'll explain. The research in psychology and rejection usually uses a simple manipulation, a cyber ball or a real tennis ball, and the rejection is people you don't know don't pass you a tennis ball in a room or don't, don't, don't involve you in a game on the computer. They start and then they stop all of a sudden. So the rejection psychologist study in the lab is a two or three minute rejection by people who you've never met before. And apparently that two or three minutes is extremely impactful and has really severe consequences. People remember it six months later with pain. Yeah, they didn't pass me the ball. It was so rude of them. It ruined my day. Um, uh, it lowers people's IQ. It lowers people's uh, 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 decision-making memory. Five minutes of rejection does that. When your whole life is one big reject, social rejection, your whole life, then the effect it has on any good part of your personality is dramatic, really, really dramatic. Because if everyone around you is telling you that you're not needed, not wanted, everybody gets up in the morning, you have nowhere to go, you send in a CV, nobody wants to even interview you. And the world is telling you day after day after day that you're not needed, you cannot help, you're a burden, you're not an asset. It's very hard, very hard to remind yourself that maybe you're not a burden and you are an asset. It's so easy to buy into if this goes on year after year by everyone. And social rejection can cause such trauma, social trauma to people, and you get the same symptoms you get from any other kind of trauma. Fight flight, anxiety, uh, uh, depression, all those symptoms are symptoms that people who have been out of a job and not part of our communities for so long, so many of them suffer from those symptoms and, and they don't have emotional disabilities necessarily at all, but they all suffer from that one. And in order to help people 
get over trauma, first of all, you need time. You need warmth. You need caring. Warmth and caring are not, how should I put this gently, hallmarks of corporate America. Of the culture in corporate America, it's the opposite of the culture. Cold, cutthroat, uncaring. And I just want to add on something which I think is very important. And um, I really believe that, I mean, I, 200,000 years Homo sapiens have been providing I mean, food and shelter within a tribe of people who know us, care for us. You can have fights and shouting and angst within a tribe, but basically you're cared for. People know who you are and you're an integral and important part of that tribe. And in fact, your ability to live without the tribe is very diminished. So I think humanity developed a very strong sensitivity to rejection because people who didn't didn't pass on their genes that well. They, they had to survive outside of the tribe. And it's not survive of the TV show. This is real survivor. It's only in the past 200 years that we've been leaving the home, our, our homes and going to work for other people since the Industrial Revolution. And as social animals, we are genetically primed, I believe, to work, provide where we are cared for amongst people who know us and care for us. And that's why nearly everybody you know is suffering from work-related anxiety or depression or isolation or bullying or harassment because we weren't, we haven't developed as a species to work that way, to leave our house and be in cold, uncaring social environments all day. We are the opposite. And in order for everybody to join our workplaces, we need the culture in the corporate world to totally change to one of caring. Caring is the, the most important word in management, and it's the only one you won't find any research about. It's totally neglected, but I think it's the most important word in management, caring. But you don't have it in corporate America, and it's keeping people out of our workplaces. And now I'll take a break and let you comment, because I've been speaking for a lot. Okay, number one. What was number one, Casey? Number one is attendance issues. So that one that's one I want to talk about, okay? Yeah. So I know Casey wants to talk about number two. Yeah. So I want to talk about number one, the attendance and issues. And I also, before, I just want to preface this. Um, all of these, if you're um, listening and studying or you are a BCBA, these are all barriers to treatment, okay? So what Gil's doing is he is addressing these barriers. So when you are going into homes and you're running assessments, it is so important that you look at what are the barriers to get this done, right? And be very open and dig to find out like attendance issues, right? Like if mom has five other kids that might be sick, that mom might not be able to get their client to, you can go. I, I know I'm okay. taking this you're, that's, you're taking number one. From, yeah. <laughs> F off. All right. So attendance issues. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, when you were talking about this and I, you know, I instantly thought of myself. I think a lot of people like, uh, or like our students know that like, um, when I started study notes, ABA, the business, everyone's like, Leah, oh my God, you're such a businesswoman. You're a bad bit, whatever it is. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I couldn't hold any other job because of my <laughs> health issues. Like I was, first of all, like having lupus, I would be like so stressed out. 
Like, I, I can't get sick. I have to show up tomorrow morning. I have to be there. Liat, make sure you're getting 14 hours of sleep. Are you getting at least 14 hours of sleep? Are you, oh my God, no. And the amount of pressure made me sicker, right? So that that was number one. And so I was like, I mean, creating Study Notes ABA, the company I'm in now, is the perfect example of when you have the right environment. Like, I, I now am probably sleeping, I don't know, six hours a night. <laughs> Which is not great, I know, but it's like I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing. As soon as I was like working for myself in my home, which now we got an office, which I also heard you, Gail, talking about. Like, why are they so excited about an office? Everyone wants to work from home. But my whole house had been taken over by the office. That was a problem. But the idea that I saw myself as also being like, you know, this illness is in the way. I can't do this many things. Like, I have a lot of problems with my hands. Um, And even something as simple as being able to control the air conditioning to whatever level I need it because I have such temperature dysregulation issues, it's like I could thrive, you know? And so setting someone up with those little things, I'm like, that's exactly – like I've seen myself go from like not being able to keep any job from working like a horse every day and like waking up excited to work. So – really figuring out what those things are. I feel blessed that I figured that out. But when you said that, I was like, oh my God, I'm the perfect example. I couldn't keep a job. Mm-hmm. All right. Number two, Casey. All right. So this one was what gave me goosebumps. As you guys all know, um, I did grow up very, very, very poor. And um, I even think about just being able to get to school. Liat was asking me this morning, like, who woke you up in the morning for school? I'm like, I did. She's like, how? I'm like, those old school alarm clocks. I said, wait, you didn't have a cell phone. She's like, your mom didn't get you up? I'm like, no. So like when you – like that's one thing, right? So that's an environmental poverty thing. Like my mom was more worried about how she could feed us and I was more worried about how we were going to keep the electricity on as a seven-year-old than, you know, if we were going to pay – if my mom could pay rent that month, if we could live. Like all those things affected me in school, in life. But when you talk about this disability pension, this hit me hard. My mom for the past 20 years has been on disability, social security disability. And she had to prove to the system. I mean, she was diagnosed bipolar and every single day of her life, she has to prove that she is not able to hold a job. And what that has done to her is crippling. Absolutely. And my sister, both of them. They have to show that they have no ability every single day. And I see that depression set in that like, you know, I'm just like, I ask you, I'm like, is your sister capable of like, and I feel that they're capable, but they've convinced themselves for so many years that they are not capable that they, you know, they have to continue to prove to doctors, to prove to society that they are, you know, mentally ill, that they cannot hold a job. And then if they make money, it's like you lose it if you make any money. So like, you know, I'm like, Caitlin, why don't you go, you know, get a job at, there's so many places hiring right now. She's like, I'll lose my disability, which is probably more than she'd be making at a $10 an hour job. And so I see how that gets stuck. And then also when you talked about like tooth pain or something, like when you're poor and you can't go to the dentist and you have a, my sister has suffering. She has no dental. She has the worst toothache. It needs to be pulled. She can't think about anything else. She's trying to take care of her baby and her son and she's in so much pain. And I'm just like, wow, like these are life problems that most people don't know about. So if you're wondering why someone's like, I can't come to work today while my kid is throwing up, they have a fever and I have a toothache where I can't even function, like those all things, I was like, wow, this is something that, 
corporate America does not take into consideration ever. No. Um, so no one could ever thrive in those environments, even if they might be able to. Right. And and um and the sad thing is that this is this is a worldwide phenomenon. And then we actually look at those people and say, well, look, they're welfare burdens, and we've actually created it. And I have to tell I got into trouble with bureaucracy so many times here because when I hear of people saying, yeah, um, severely disabled people need a pension in order to, to live, but if they work, we'll take that pension away. I just look at people and say, who's the idiot? I mean, who is the idiot that thought that this has any kind of merit? In Israel, luckily, they changed the law 15 years ago to one that if you work, only after you hit around minimum wage will your pension start to be somewhat degraded and you have to make pretty much three or four times as much as your pension in order to totally lose it. And the minute you're out of work, you get it immediately back. Because until then, that's, everybody was that's afraid. That's a motivating factor that people can actually in New York, get to work. In New York today, you, you, you work, I think, um, for anything, you lose you lose your pension or you earn more than 700 bucks a month in, I mean, in New York and you yeah, lose so your my, pension. In, in New Hampshire, where we live, if my sister got a job or my mom got a job, they make, let's say, $1,200 a month, right? Which is not much to live on and supporting children. Um, if they had any job that paid minimum wage at all, which I think is like seven dollars, um, they would Inflation, lose it. They would up. lose it completely. Yeah. It's not even so, a, a a small decrease. It's like gone. Yeah. So there are all there are many, many, many in all countries stupid laws that are just not intelligent enough, and they're usually made by able-bodied people, not empathic enough to what really what's going on. They're trying to solve a bureaucracy problem instead of a human problem. I mean, behaviorally also speaking, doesn't that make it seem like, okay, so I don't want to make money legally because it's going to, it's like only incentivizing, like going to make money illegally. Like, <laughs> I mean, just like they really need some, you know, psychologist, behavior analyst making these. <laughs> More than that. But I, I want to tell you one of the things, um, I really think that um, we can change the world and we can make it fully inclusive. And once all our workplaces are fully inclusive, then real social justice can happen because if it doesn't happen in our workplaces where we spend most of our waking hours where adults go to provide and, and realize their dreams, if we don't have social justice there, if it's not fully inclusive, if we don't see the real makeup of our communities within our workplaces, then then any no black lives matter or me too or any kind it'll never it'll never work at the end of it because the first place we have to look at for social justice and and struggle for it is our workplaces and it's not just making them more inclusive because even if they all open their doors wide which they are certainly not doing some people would have a hard time entering and maintaining a job in the current culture it has to we also have to change the culture and one of the things and in order to do that i decided i need to write a book about what we've learned in these 20 years since we've been doing this and and one of the things the book promotes is something we called re, uh, reserved employment for the opportunity deprived and it's it's an important concept i just want to explain and it has it, it's 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 it'll be personal for the two of you because it, it touches so many people I mean, we all understand it when it comes to parking, right? We have reserved parking for people who don't have as many options as we do. So if they can't walk 
long distance, we, we save a few of the best parking spots for them. Even though everybody likes to park close, everybody realizes that if you don't serve, reserve a few of them, they'll never be able to enter the venue. And worldwide, this is, this is respected. And even you know, Seinfeld had a show on it. You have all sorts of sites that trash people who, who park in, in, illegal par in, in, in disabled parking. So everybody gets it when it comes to parking. And I just want to have the same concept when it comes to employment, and I'll explain. People with cognitive disabilities, a lot of them, for instance, can clean tables and do dishes or fix up rooms in a hotel as well as anybody else, and they can do it with a smile and well and happily, not necessarily for eight or nine hours a day maybe, but they can do the job as well with as much productivity as anybody else. Do you know of one coffee shop chain that reserves some of those spots for people with cognitive disabilities? Because I found one, only one. And they do, but there's only one. And why only one? You can pay them regular wages. They have where to go in the morning. They become part of us. Their parents, they, they have such a needed break emotionally and otherwise. Why does only one coffee chain in the world do that? One example, so many people who have hearing impairments are out of work because they can't communicate well enough. So many companies have chat teams, and that's an entry-level job where you could bring people into the market. Save some of those jobs for people who are deaf or with hearing impairments so they'll have an entry-level job that they can do. They have less opportunities than the rest of us, right? And pretty much for anyone you want to think of, Anyone you want to think of, there are enough jobs out there that they can do for regular productivity and earn regular wages. Only the really institutionalized and tough cases cannot. But unless we reserve some of those jobs for them, just like we do parking, they'll always be out of a job. And one of the things we want to educate the world to do is reserved employment. Look at your company. Look at the positions you have, just as you said, Think, are there people who can excel and thrive in this, but they can't do many other things, so I'll keep this for those kinds of people, people who have less options. And it, it doesn't have to be disabled people. For instance, the, the country with the most biggest ex-con problem in the world is America, where one of every three black kids has a good chance of ending up in prison at some point, and then he's an ex-con, and then he can't find work, and he becomes a welfare burden. And large brands, instead of hiring, build daycare centers, which is so stupid for people instead of hiring them. Amazon is having so many problems with their supply chain and, and, and warehouse workers. You have 16 million ex-cons dying to work in America. Nobody's looking at them. How can you have supply shortages and warehouse shortages when you have so many people who are dying to enter the job market. It just, in, 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 in Europe, there are lots of problems because there are not enough truck drivers to, to, to move the gas and the various products. You have the five or 10 billion, at least, refugees dying to become part of Europe, dying for a job. I'm sure we can find a few thousand potential truck drivers there. If we just looked at all those we never look at, all those we overlook, they could become such a basic, wonderful core of engaged, happy, appreciative employees if 
we looked at them, and if we know how to cater to their needs so they can successfully join the workplace. And what's the title of your book? It's called Winning with Underdogs. And it basically, it's a three-part book. It starts off, and it's coming out at the beginning of September. You can, you can pre-order it now. And I tried to make it as interesting as possible because I really wanted people to read it. <laughs> so uh, during, uh, throughout the book, I interspersed two things to keep uh, people engaged. One is an awful lot of very upsetting factoids, <laughs> uh, but, but curious ones. So I'll just give you a few examples. Um, in the global 500 companies, you have more executives named John than women in the boards. Could, could you imagine more males named John than women in, in, in the boardrooms like of those 500 global companies? Here's another aggravating one uh, for women. A black woman in America is probably going to be earning about a million dollars less than her male counterpart just because of gender parity gaps and wages a million bucks during her lifetime less. So I have all sorts of like aggravating stuff like that going on along the book and an awful lot of stories about our employees, short stories about our employees that just to highlight a point and, and, and the employees in CY, we have a few hundred employees nowadays, Two-thirds of the employees and managers are severely disabled, and a third are just other kinds of underdogs, a lot of, a lot of cons and ex-cons, uh, uh, minorities, uh, um, people who, who feel that they don't, they don't have another place that wants them, and we welcome them. So, um, so the, book, the first part of the book is about what, what's the real state of uh, diversity? Because there's so much out there. They're, they're like, there's so many books about diversity. There's so many articles, glowing reports. And I got to wondering, is anyone cheating? And oh, yeah. you know what? You know what I found out? Everyone's cheating. Now, I'm not saying that lightly because these are really big companies and they can be very upset with me if I just blame them <laughs> with no cause. They're all yeah. cheating or... Most of them are cheating as far as I know. Could I give you one example of cheating? I'll give you two. Yes. We like multiple exemplars. All right. Um, uh, uh, um, Google is very proud of their employees with disabilities. They write glowing opinion, uh, opinion articles in all sorts of major newspapers about, about their wonderful inclusion. Uh, of people with disabilities and that people with disabilities comprise 15% of the world and they, they think they're a wonderful asset to every workplace. They bring amazing additional value and they celebrate them and, 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 and they even went to this huge um, uh, uh, foundation which actually gives a checkup on your inclusion practices, disability inclusion practices, and they give you a, a grade on that. And you know how much Google got? Want to guess? How much? A hundred. A hundred. What? One hundred percent. So I asked myself, and, and many, many, many large brands get a hundred. What's their from, criteria? From What's their criteria? So that's what I said. All right. I mean, um, if Google has a hundred thousand employees worldwide and fifty thousand, fifteen percent of the world is disabled, and they're very proud 
then they probably have like 15,000 disabled employees or, or at least 10,000, right? Because they did get 100, right? So when you look, it's very difficult to find out for objective and non-objective reasons how many disabled em- employees they actually have because when they do diversity reports, everybody writes about African-Americans, Asians, Native Americans, women, pretty much that's it. That's the end of the diversity. No ex-cons mention, no disability mention. We don't really know what's going on. But when they asked their employees who is disabled, and by the way, if 15% of the world are disabled, when you do a self-report, 25% of the world say they're disabled. So you've got to like cut that in half to get the real figure, right? So when they asked their employees, the answer was 6% which is a real 3%, which seems a bit far away from the 15%. And then you ask yourself, so what, one, how did they get 100? And two, what are the criteria for getting marks on disability inclusion with this major foundation that everybody like, they, they, they go and they're like in Harvard Business Review, they'll give you an article about how great they were. We got 100. So it's very difficult to find out. But if you if, if if you stick with it enough and you take enough Adderall, then you can. And I did. <laughs> and um, this is what I found: that the mark you get for actually hiring people with disabilities, right, that constitutes ten percent of your mark out of the hundred. Actually, hi- that's like you're going oh, to a restaurant. Doesn't mean if with you two okay. with two Michelin stars, right? Mm-hmm. But there's no food. So how do they get the stars? You see what I'm saying? So if there's someone who's checking your disability inclusion, but only even a bit less than 10% of your actual grade goes toward hiring, actually hiring people with disabilities, and you're you're boasting that you got 100, something's a bit off. Would you agree? But then how did they get that full 10% if it's only 6,000 by self-report and not... Like twenty five thousand by self report. How 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 does that? It still doesn't make sense, right? Oh, and then so you look at the, the names of of companies that get a hundred and boast about it in all sorts of op eds, and they hold conventions and they bring in people and, and 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 people talk about disability and they bring in the guy from 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 Amazon or from Microsoft or from Google because they're so good at it, but they're not. They're not. None of them. None of them represent this disability or people with disability, like they are in in the community, not even halfway. What you should be is very, very quiet, apologetic about the whole thing, Brands. You shouldn't be out there touting something that is totally, you know, not real. Bullshit. So the first part of the book is about that, yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's not gentle, Uh sort of. You're building that, um. That MO, the fire under people's asses. Yeah. Uh, so th- the real state of diversity was shitty. The second part of the book is if you do want to be diverse, then you're going to have to change your culture and you're going to have to be able to employ people that it's a bit harder to employ. Um, and the second part of the book is a how-to. How do you screen people to see their real potential? How do you get rid of anxiety in the screening process? Because it just it's just like putting mud on a camera lens. It just blurs what you're trying to actually see, which is potential. Anxiety just blurs that. But everybody with traditional screening, 
elevates anxiety instead of eliminating anxiety. And how do you onboard where socially the onboarding part of the social on, part of onboarding is so much more important than the, the, the other parts of onboarding? When people feel welcome socially, the rest will fix itself. How do you do training to people who are timid and, 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 and shy and, and apprehensive and, and insecure? And how do you manage them? How do you give them feedback? How do you create an environment where everybody's trying to be kind to each other? And nice is the, is the, is the, is the word. When people survey our employees in CY and we're doing call center work, which is people shouting at you on the phone all day, 95% of our employees are extremely happy at their job, extremely happy with their managers. And it's a shitty job. It's call center work where you get shouted at. But if the environment if the social aspect of it, if you feel needed, loved, cared for, what you're actually doing is less important. If you're doing it amongst people where you feel welcome and wanted. And I think that's... So the second part of the book is the how-to. And the third part of the book is how we get from here to there. Uh, how just any of us... And I give all sorts of stories about how a small group of people created national change also in all sorts of places, like 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 uh, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD in America. They really changed legislation. They had a huge impact, started with one mom. So I give all sorts of examples about changes that can happen with a, with a few people. And all people have to do is invest like 30 seconds a day in three hashtags to create real change. Let's Let's <laughs> ask companies to show us their real diversity, like with food, right? We have food labeling. You're not going to buy food from a company that doesn't label their food. Don't buy from a brand that doesn't give you true diversity on their homepage. Is, do they have gender parity gaps? You can check that in one hour, by the way. Do they hire enough disabled people? Do they hire enough ex-cons? Are there... Are they working with their equity and not only with allowing people in, but giving the same leveling the playing field. Let's, let's, let's know about that with, with, with diversity labels, just like food labeling, diversity labeling. And let's have that on, on the front page and hashtag diversity labels. If enough of that goes around, it's going to create an awful lot of pressure. Let's have top-down accountability. I mean, CEOs are so good at hitting targets, right? They keep on missing the diversity ones. Why can't they be as accountable? How can a CEO earn a huge bonus if everybody beneath him is unhappy and out of balance with their homes and in distress? The bonuses have to be connected to the well-being of the people who help you achieve those bonuses. If you're not working, if your diversity plans aren't working, fire the CEO like you would if he's hitting only 50% of the business targets, right? So we need much more accountability, and we also need our loved ones to speak up. Because if you think about it, women are half of us, black people in America, maybe, I don't know, 15, 18 percent, uh, uh, Latinos, 13, I don't know. If you look at all the underdogs, majority. If you look at all the underdogs with their families and loved ones, large majority. But we've been silent We've been allowing it to go on. We've been fighting for social justice for so many years without getting anywhere, really, because women, I mean, you remember the suffragettes? That was like 100 years ago. And, and women still have a 34% gender parity wages gap worldwide. How can that be? We are equal. How can that be? When 
Today in the computers, you can check that in an hour and fix it. And you have so many companies holding conventions about the importance of gender. Just press the button and fix it. It's easy to look at. So that's what the book is about. And the last chapter of the book is about my own motivations to start this journey, which we didn't discuss, but I'm not sure what that should, should be discussed. Maybe we save it for the book. Yeah. I want to say, so in this show notes, you guys will have the pre-order link and it will be out in September. But I want to maybe wrap up. If you could tell the story of Clara in the interview, because we didn't get into a lot of like how to interview people. And you do have a, a YouTube on this and I love it. Um, but I think it would touch a lot of people of, you know, how to go about bringing out the best in someone when you're interviewing them. Okay. So first of all, um, I don't remember if I talked about that, but um, I'm an identical twin. We, we mentioned that. So is Clara. That's not her real name. So is Clara. They're two identical twins. They arrived at the call center when they were 20. One of them is wheelchair-bound. The other one uses a walker. Uh, they're both uh, amazing. I mean, they've been with us for 10 years now, but they were so shy and timid when they turned up. And, you know, one is pushing the other, and they were so shy and timid when they turned up, they, they wouldn't even you know, make eye contact. And when they were interviewed, I, they couldn't string two sentences together. But because we realized that in regular interviews, people are so anxious that they really, really have a hard time, and interviewers have a hard time seeing what they really are and their real worth. So we totally changed the whole interview process as we did many other things, part of our model, and we call it the reverse interview process because we do everything opposite. People fill out a loves and passions questionnaire before they come up, they, they turn up. And the interview starts with the interviewer, first of all, making coffee for them, hosting them as if they're an honored guest, speaking about themselves if they're asked, and mainly asking and inquiring and showing interest in the loves, passions, and hobbies of the applicant. Because people are most passionate when they speak about things, are most verbal when they speak about things of which they're passionate. So you get to see people when they're verbal and comfortable. And, and, and the, the interview room is like a living room, and it's like a, an escape room game. And we, we tell them in advance that there are certain places along the way they will get stuck. And we built it so they will get stuck because we're interested to see what happens when they do get stuck. We'll be offering hints, like, uh, like uh, giving people clues of what they should be doing or uh, um, role-playing what they should be doing in order for them to see it because different people have different modes of learning. You, you, you know this probably better than I do. And, and you can't pretend that everybody learns the same way. We want to find out what mode of learning suits that person best so that we can cater to them later on when they join us. So we want them stuck so we can see what helps them most and how they get helped and, 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 and stuff like that. And, and both of them started, both twins started working for us. And one of the most amazing things about, about, our, our, about CY is that five couples have already met and married in the call center. Wow. We, we, we already have grandchildren, I call them. And, and um, <laughs> yeah, and, um, and not, not always someone disabled with someone disabled, right? I mean, we don't, in the call center, because most things you can't see, Emotional disability you can't see. Many illnesses you can't see. Lots of uh, legally blind people you wouldn't notice 
So there's this, it doesn't look like a, a disabled place and nobody's really interested or gives a shit if the person on the left or right is disabled or not. It's people and they're, they're concentrating on who the person is and not, not what their physical or emotional abilities or inabilities are. So um, one of the twins got married a few years ago and I was like, I just couldn't make it at all. I was like such a, a crying mess because it was so emotional to me to see those lovely, lovely, lovely girls whom I love dearly, not only leaving, you know, going into independence and, and gaining a life, but gaining friends and a husband and a family and it's it's so far from where they were and it's true for so many people and in, in working for us that where they started out in life and where they are now is it's, it's so emotionally and, and amazingly different and um and and apparently if you do things with the emotional well-being mm-hmm. of uh, of employees in mind then you don't have to take care of their your customers they will you just have to take care of them. They'll take care of your customers. Your customers will take care of your business and your profits. You just cater to the well-being of the people who you manage and you're in charge of. And it's such an amazing thing. And CY is considered an extremely professional call center. People stay longer than other places. They care more. We have people practice at home. Even after 10 years, if their their, their, their results go down a bit, it's that important to them. It's, it's really such a different place. And it's the Middle East. I mean, it's difficult to get everybody nice and on the same vibe. Jews, Muslims, Samaritans, Bedouins. It's like Christians. It's different. Wow. That story is, like, I'm really inspired as, you know, our company grows here to really look into, you know, a lot of the, you know, the diverse populations that you spoke about that we really just, like, don't even consider. Just, you know, even, like, when you were saying people who are, like, um, Ex-cons or, or, you know, who... We've had people in for manslaughter and they're doing amazing. I mean, that's that's what I'm... It's it's really... And I think that what you said is you take care of your employees and create that caring environment and then your employees will take care of your customers and the customers take care of the business. And I think that's something that you have definitely cultivated here um, when any, like... I know we're not corporate, but it's something no. where no, it's a good thing you're not corporate. The, I don't think yeah, corporate's a exactly. good thing. No, it's but like the love and the caring. Nowadays. The reason I'm in Dallas right now is because I was basically about to have a nervous breakdown of depression and anxiety and PTSD. And you know, on Zoom, you think you can fake it so much. Like, oh, I show up every day. I get my work done. I'm fine, right? And Liat, as the most amazing boss, and caring she was like you're not okay and I'm like I am okay she's like I'm calling bullshit I'm putting you on a plane and you're coming out to Dallas and it's not about work it's not about your productivity that's not how I measure you she I measure you by your who you are as a person inside Casey and I need to have you not broken so we're gonna eat fruit balls every morning and we're gonna have like you know talk about things and do work in a complex PTSD notebook and listen to TED talks and just really not have to focus so much on I'm a big person on productivity and that's my worth. And if I don't produce, I'm not, I'm worthless. And 
as a caring person, she cultivates an environment where stop, Casey, no. And like, that is what, again, I then go take care of my customers because I get the love from the top and then the customers support the business. It's hey. so beautiful. <laughs> but but it's, 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 it's beautiful. It's simple. And it's a basic truth. Yeah. And everybody realizes it. Everybody knows it. We're just pretending for so long in, in corporate America that everything is great. And if people pass you by and say, how are you doing? And you say, I want to kill myself. They just keep on going. They just keep on going. There's no, I mean, it's, it's so cold. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. Everybody's suffering. Everybody's mm -hmm. suffering. And it doesn't have to Especially be that way. Especially these days. I mean, sometimes I've, I've spent an awful lot of time in boardrooms as a consultant of, of large, and I'm really, I, the difference between a boardroom and a large company and the waiting room for proctology surgery is like non-existent. Everybody has the same countenance of pain and suffering and angst and, uh, and, and shit's happening. And I really, it's like, it's, it's like someone floated the idea many years back that you have to suffer at work and everybody bought into it and I don't get it. I really want to see at my place people happy and smiling, not every day and not every hour. There's like this crisis. Well, I think I think a lot of literature also, like I, like I love reading different business books and um, just like leadership, whatever it is. But I also read like a lot of like, you know, Adam Grant type books and – you know, I think a lot of it has also become like this obsession with boundaries. And it's like, if you're a leader, you need to be setting boundaries of this, this, and this, and this. That's how you like lead people, blah, blah, blah. I suck at boundaries, which a lot of people I think would be like, you know, you should be setting boundaries of this and that. But I also think like- It makes you human. We also lose the ability to be human with people. And it's like, when you are human with anyone that you like connect with, you know, like even- whether it's like my therapist or, you know, when she's like, when I hear a fact about my therapist, I'm like, oh, so you are married. Okay, good. So like, not good. Like, it's like, oh, I know something about you. One time I saw her at the grocery store and I saw her buying toilet paper. And I'm like, I always tell her, I know what brand toilet paper you use. You know, <laughs> like, it's like, I know you are a, hu you know, uh -huh. any part, it, it creates human connection. And I think all of us are seeking that. And so I do think some of these, I mean, yes, boundaries can be good in some sense. Sure. So I've heard. Um, <laughs> I try practicing, practicing them with her and she's like, what is this? You're not responding to me at eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, I am setting a boundary with you. <laughs> but the idea of like allowing yourself to be human with another human, depending on like no matter what, I think is really helps. I, I just want to say one more thing. I, I try to set boundaries all the time and it doesn't work for me, but these are the boundaries I try to set. Mothers and fathers of young children cannot answer emails after six in the evening. Nobody's willing to do that. You have to leave the WhatsApp groups when you're abroad. Nobody's willing to do that. You can't work more than a certain amount of hours a day. Nobody's willing to do that. And they cheat me all the time. I mean, I mean, where are you? Are you in the office? No, not in the office. Sounds like you're in the office. No, and I know that. And as as a manager, as a CEO, the only level uh, lever I actually step on is the brakes. I just keep on trying to apply the brakes because if people care are cared for, their caring makes them. You never have to like whip the horses, and I'm sure, yeah, that you don't have to either. And the whole thing about boundaries is 
You need general boundaries, but when you have people, grown people who want to act like adults and be responsible, just let them. And if you provide them enough caring and they're engaged enough, they'll do an amazing job. Not the boundaries. I just try to, I just try to, you know, curb them in a bit because they're, you know, they're, they're so enthusiastic that they need, they need more time off. That's exactly what you're doing to me this week. <laughs> uh-huh. There you go. I'm very enthusiastic. I would just work, 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 whatever needs to get done, especially as a startup. And she's like, that's the one boundary you're setting is like pump the brakes. Yeah. Chill, it's, it's, this, is, this is a long, it's a long term thing. You've got to like pace yourself. Mm-hmm. I'll be really happy that when, when you do read the book, you, you, you tell me what you think. I'm sure we're going to have you back on after I read the book. Um, so we yeah, can, but debrief. when you get all famous, don't like, don't forget about us. Yeah. Don't forget about the bitches, you know? Well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing. Um, humility and humbleness is one of the values of the call center, because when you have people who've been looked down upon their whole lives, they don't need any more of that. They need people looking them in the eye. So in the call center, Part of the value training, and it's, we write this in the book, it's like written in the book, is that I am the CEO and I get to do one thing because I'm the CEO. I get to make decisions. I'm not better than anybody. I'm not a better citizen. I'm not a better husband, maybe. I'm not a better father, maybe. I'm not more intelligent. I don't have a better voice. I just higher up the ranking and it enables me to make decisions where other people cannot. But that's it. I have no right to talk down to anybody because I'm not better than anybody. I just have a higher level position. I'm a human like anybody else. And because I am so grounded every day with people that I need to keep looking in the eye, I don't think there's much fear of me getting um, all high and mighty. Success would be if like 50 more couples married, then, that, then you might have a hard time with me. But, but other than that... Oh, okay. Um, you're a well, true well, romantic you know, at heart. Well, no. Well, you I know, am. like in, in Judaism, they say like if you get three couple, there's like a thing for anyone listening. Like if you have three couples that you Magic. successfully get married, they say you're automatically going to heaven. There's like a, you know what I'm talking well, about? I'm, I was like born the, Jewish, but I, I'm a firm believer and this is our one shot. And um, we should try and leave the room. And I think you two are doing it. Try and leave the room a bit cleaner than it was before we entered it. The room being the world, and I think that's what I'm really, really trying to do. And I think that you're also trying to do that. And 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 I'm sure your podcast is helping and pushing along in the same direction I'm trying to push along. And I really believe we'll get there. Together, we can do anything, Gil. I feel it. I love this energy. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Um, it really just this conversation was so eye opening and so important for anyone listening. Absolutely. And I'm so excited for me to pre-order your book. And I'm sure we'll have you back on for a debrief part two of, of the book. The book. Um, it's called The Winning, Winning with, with Underdogs. Underdogs. And I think that's what Liad is. I'm an underdog. I was, you know, all my life. And you're winning with me now. Okay. I'm just oh, telling her that so, so she sis. never forgets and it's on the radio. You're not an I mean, on the podcast. That's the problem. She sees herself as that. But whatever. Oh, see, that's my trauma. <laughs> All right. Well, Gil, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys, if you are listening to this, I really recommend you share it with either, you know, if you're the actual employer or if you're the employee, I think this is a great message to get around. Mm -hmm. Um, You guys know where to find us. You can find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast. 
You go to our website, behaviorbitches.com, and contact us from there if you have any ideas of you want to come on the show or you know someone amazing to come on. That's all we have for you today. So as always, love ya, mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 